0: Today's guest blew me away. Robin has got an incredible work ethic. At 12 years old, she knew that she wanted to be in events. Since then, she's gone on to build three hugely successful businesses. That's everything from festivals through to travel companies. She's run multi-million pound parties for the likes of Formula One. She also started the UK's first ever socially distanced festival. Robin is honest, she's passionate about her craft, she's got an incredibly inspiring story that I can't wait to share with you. So thank you to Robin for coming on and sharing all of those learnings that she's made along the way and I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. We're back, we've got a new series of Business Keeps On Dancing and this series we're going to focus on spotlights of some of our favourite people and some of the most successful people in the music industry and find out how they did it. So today we've got Robin Isherwood, is that the right pronunciation? It is the right pronunciation. Yes. Uh, so Rob- Robin's the founder of the UK's first ever social distancing festival which was Gisburn Park Pop-Up and since then she's gone on to launch the Estate Festival but if she wasn't busy enough she's also got a travel and event concierge company called Encore Lifestyle and Robin's got more than twelve years experience with some of London's largest well um well renowned event companies and she's worked all over the world from music events to the luxury events sector. You've had multi-million pound parties, from what I've heard, so I'm sure you've got some stories to tell us there. So yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's
1: an absolute pleasure. How are you nice, doing? Nice to be back in the north. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice to be back in Manchester. I haven't been to Manchester for a long time, so. It's actually
0: a sunny day in Manchester know, yeah. as well. I know, I was
1: like skipping down the streets, I was like, this is lovely. <laughs> you've
0: brought the sunshine I with have. you. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I think your, your journey is quite interesting because, you know, some people kind of go straight into the the festival scene, but you've kind of gone a bit more large scale with it to begin with um, yeah. but yeah I want to hear that in your words. so where, yeah. where did you start your first foray into events where did it start?
1: Sure I mean I want, I knew I wanted to do events in the age of 12 which is um, and I was desperate to work from 12 I begged and begged and begged my mother to have a job and she was like you're 12 <laughs> and um, so we, we applied for the local cafe and um, they were like no you're too young but then somebody didn't turn up for work and then I got the call so I started working um, and I just loved the hospitality industry from that point and just kind of being with people and a kind of a person, a, a personable kind of role. And, um, and then from there, I knew I wanted to do the event side of things. So I started planning the proms. So I did I plan my um, high school prom and my sixth form prom yep. and then worked for a wedding venue locally in Clitheroe. Um, and, again, just started to see all of that kind of side of things, with the events, and so many different elements to how a wedding would work. Um, and then I don't know if you, you remember, probably not, um, there was an event in the north called Loaded, New Year's Eve party, and think, it was at the Duncan yeah. Hotel, and it yeah. was like the full hotel takeover. New Year's Eve party, each different room was a different theme, and it was all, you could have stayovers. there was a pool party, and i um i met jamie who was the owner and kind of curator of that whole event and i basically interned for him Mm -hmm. and i got free tickets off the back of it and from that i was like right this is this is what i want to do so when it came to choosing the university that i wanted to go to my sixth form were very kind of certain that i would i should go to a red brick university and do business management and i was like that's great but i i don't want to do that I want to do events. Was so, oh well, you know, you could, you could do business and then transfer across to events. And I was like, but that what's the point? I don't yeah. get it. Um, and I I was I was academic to a point. I did I did well in my A levels, but it, it, I wasn't a kind of a bookworm. I was way more get me in front of people, working um, and that side of things. So then mum looked into different places where you could do it, and obviously there was Leeds, uh, Manchester, and Oxford Brookes. So I ended up going to Oxford Brookes University and studied International Hospitality Management, which is a four-year course. And on my second year of the course, I had to do a placement year. And being International Hospitality Management, I had the opportunity of either doing an international element of my placement or an international exchange. And I knew that I wanted to be in London to do events. So I figured to to use the international um, placement, uh, 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 not the placement, sorry, the exchange as the international part of the course, and focus my placement in London. Mm. So I managed to get the placement at the Amable Crichton, which at the time was kind of like the biggest events company in London, um, run by Johnny Roxburgh, who is just the best human being. <laughs> and he taught me everything. And he, will, if he ever watches this, he will, um, he will like to agree with that. <laughs> um, but he was amazing and just so. Um, just inspiring, just the way that he changed a room and did the things that he did and so my first ever event, I got the placement and I wasn't meant to start until September and then I got called by the staffing manager and, you know, what are you doing in the next three days? Nothing. It was the summer holidays, so nothing. Um, do you want to come to Tuscany? It's like, Yes, yes I do. Yeah. So flew out to Tuscany and we did a three and a half million pound wedding and that was my first event for them. Um, They built the marquee above the tennis courts in a chateau. There was um, a team of florists that they brought out from London who were replanting the entire castle to match the theme of the wedding. And it was just, it was the biggest eye-opener for me to kind of, you know, come from Clitheroe and done my little events here, there and everywhere and then to be thrust into a very kind of London-style planning of an event um, and of that budget. It was just like, ah. But from that moment, I, I knew I was in the right industry because it was just so exciting and there were so many elements to it that had to be right. I mean, there was four-tiered hanging chandeliers of flowers in the ceiling of the marquee and just insane. Um, and then from there, I, I worked. The placement was amazing because it was, a, it was a structured placement within the business. So I had to work in every single section of the business. So I was even a porter. So they had the um, storerooms with all of the props and the the plates and the cutlery because it was actually a catering company as well as a design company. So they're all of the big South African porters. I had I only lasted a week. <laughs> they were like, "Robin, all you can carry is cushions," and I was like, "I'm sorry." <laughs> so I put a, I could make a good tea. <laughs> um, so and then was I was in the kitchen and then. I finally got into the party planning um, office, mm. and that's kind of where I've I flourished, and I was then made an assistant of one of the senior party planners, and working directly with him on a huge bar mitzvah. Um, it was a James Bond themed bar mitzvah, and we <laughs> we we rigged the the bar mitzvah boy in a harness. Um, <laughs> to the ceiling of the marquee. Right. <laughs> and so all of the guests went in and sat down. It was all personalised um, table tops on the tables that were um, like roulette um, designs, but personalised with his name and everything. And then everyone sat down and all the lights flickered. And then <laughs> we had... Um, who's the really evil one from uh, James Bond? That's like... Dr. Evil. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Evil came on stage and... Um, it was like, ha, 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 the other person that can save you now is James Bond. So the 11-year-old bar mitzvah boy then flies through the ceiling with the marquee <laughs> over all of his guests in his tuxedo to a 16-piece orchestra playing James what? Bond. How did you get that past health and safety? I, I'm <laughs> not actually entirely sure we did. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, did I see an event management plan? <laughs> and then he threw some fake grenades on the stage and we did fake... Um, pyros and then wow. he there were these two blonde bond girls that like to undid his uh, harness and then passed him a fake martini he spam around and said she could not stir it <laughs> and like one of those moments you're just like right <laughs> this is what I'm gonna do brother. This, this, this is really pushing it <laughs> but it was amazing and so off the back of that for a year um, I actually won an award for the best placement in the UK um, which was huge for me and for my career. So when I, I went back to university for two more years, um, did a, a exchange to Australia, so I went to university for Australia for a, a semester, and then I ended up with 14 job offers off the back of it, off the back of this award, because it was so kind of well known, and and I think because of the amount of events that I'd done and what I'd seen in my CV was fairly strong in terms of graduating, um, so from there, I was going to go back to the Amable Crichton, but GSP counter offered, um, and I was hired to be the assistant producer of the Formula One after parties around the world, oh. um, which was a major job straight out of university. Um, we started working on um, there was an Australia one and a Malaysia Grand Prix. Um, then unfortunately, things kind of fell apart with the other side of the F1 bits, but that's a long story um, but I was kept on at GSP and for two and a half years travelled the world from Ibiza to Puglia at uh, Cannes saint um, everywhere doing multi-million pound parties I did a two million pound wedding on an island in Cannes and had to barge load everything across we flew the we flew the flowers in we trucked the production in the furniture in all from all around like it was just insane wow so you really started yeah. with, with a bang with think, a bang yeah. yeah I think I kind of went the other end
0: from like flyer in and doing nights on shoestring budgets and then kind of built up there but I guess you've kind of gone into the deep end yeah. and just tried to absorb all of that the thing I th- find really interesting is that you've got you know any promoter agent booker anyone started off as a novice and yeah. not really knowing what what they're doing and I think I find it really interesting that process of when you're first starting off, and I think you touched on it. Then trying bits of everything is yeah. the best, the best education you can get. Yeah. And I think just being on the front line of having to book it and do flowers and get kids flying across rooms and all of that—it's <laughs> so important to understand the yeah. whole 360 of of how an event works. So how did you find that?
1: I think that was one of the biggest learning curves of my placement, and that's kind of why I I do owe a lot to Johnny and everybody at the Hall Crichton. because. You know, mistakes were made at that, and I was young. um, But you you only make the mistake once, and that's, like, the key thing in the events industry is I think everyone's open to people making a mistake if they don't know, but it's how you then react to it and then work on from it. So I remember at that um, bar mitzvah, I was in charge of the plasmont, which is, you know, when you walk in, you have your name card, and then it tells you what table you're sat at which and then also on the table then there was the name card and so I had them all in the office and I I had all the boxes all that but I didn't check them against the guest list and that was for me so then when I started when I was on the event doing the setup and laying everything out I hadn't checked them so there was missing and there were spelling mistakes but it was too late to then get the calligrapher to then redo them and it's tiny little details like that now I'm so anal when I get my when I get my um, printing in before an event to check everything because you've got time to be able to change it, and you know it's human error. It you, the calligraphy, you know, just miss one name from a list of two hundred and fifty names. Like it's not a big deal. But at that moment, it was a pretty big deal because yeah. I—it was I think it was the mother's name as well. I was oh, like Oh wow! That's she- but that's that's where you learn to sweat the small yeah. stuff because
0: I think there's finding a balance between just get started, get perfect later, and just get stuck in. But I think the more you expose yourself to making mistakes, as horrible and as yeah. anxiety-inducing as it sounds, yeah. like that is what you learn from. Like 100%. I'm sure everyone has fucked up and learned yeah. a, a lot from yeah, it. Yeah. And you kind of need to put yourself in those positions. And
1: exactly, you, you've got to you've got to look at the entire thing of a million pound party and you've got not got one name card in the grand scheme of things of everything else that's gone well and perfect it's okay but at the time when you you feel like that's the end of the world it's like you're not saving lives (laughs) (laughs) you're just putting a name card on a table yeah yeah (laughs) sometimes if I'm someone with good handwriting (laughs) (laughs) if I have a really long or stressful week I'm like do you
0: know what people have got much bigger things to worry about than selling tickets but so I th- find it interesting, like, your transition, which, which which we'll get to later in terms of how your career has pr- progressed from there. But was there a point when you were doing these parties for other people, you know, working with big teams and thinking, I want to do this on my own? Was that always an ambition of Yeah,
1: definitely. And actually, um, so when I left GSP, I then went to... Um, I did a small stint at Made Up and actually went into the production world because I'd, I'd done three back-to-back abroad weddings in Italy. And I was like, I do not want to see another private event ever. <laughs> I am done with brides. I can't do it. No. No. Um, so I went into production and went to Made Up and obviously they do all the set design and production for all the clubs and Ibiza and all the festivals and very brand orientated. Yep. And so I was bringing a little bit more of a kind of private events edge to that. I was only there for six months because I was then poached by Lillingston, which is another big private events company. Um, and I remember in the interview, Sophie Lillingston asked me, you know, what's your five year plan? I said, I'll have my own business in five years. She said, well, that's very you know you're 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 quite young and that's very ambitious and I was like well actually it'll probably be three yeah and she looked at me like right you're not joking <laughs> and I wasn't in five years I have my own business so I, I got the job at Lillingston um I again more private amazing parties weddings around the world and then we developed the concierge side of things which was Essentially, we had a super high net worth clients that were spending a lot of money on parties um, and weddings. And it's a 12-month process where you become part of their family. You are in their house every week. You are on the phone, WhatsApp calls, changing flower designs, doing this. And you become kind of so involved in them because it's such a big day for them or weekend. Um, but then when it finishes, it's like a breakup because there is no reason for you to stay in touch with them. Mm. But they have you know a net worth which they they trust you if they, they if they trust you enough to do your wedding then surely they'll trust you to go on a travel trip or take them to the, the F1 or to the Champions League final or and so then i then developed the the concierge element with a private events edge to it instead of it kind of being corporate hospitality yeah it was really high end so it was a private jet into you know for the champions league with a box and security and restaurant bookings and five star hotels and duck, 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 all of that sort of stuff and at the same time doing the private events but kind of keeping those clients within the business and then um, i was actually given my own company within lillingston so i was then director shareholder of the concierge company that then blew up and was amazing. We then bought a travel company and an American travel company. So then we had this kind of the Lillingson collection, which was the triangle of private events, travel and concierge. And we were feeding each other because the events team were doing abroad a events. And so when you were doing a broad event, you had 250 people going to Italy. You, we then put on the invitations, to speak to our travel company to then organize all your travel. Okay. And then so we were feeding the business and it was a really lovely kind of triangle of um, situations but then i got to the point where time was
0: up <laughs> was was there a day you woke up and thought like what was that moment when you actually started it yourself
1: um i think it was after a very very intensely hard year which you know i can i'll, I'll speak quite openly about i i pressured myself and the business there was a lot of pressure from the business um and i'd i'd that's when I, my anxiety started yeah. and we i was and off i did about 20 abroad trips and i was on and off plane i was literally coming home flipping a suitcase repacking leaving the next day while still having to do the work and run the business and deal with the clients and the clients needs were getting bigger and i was turning over you know in excess of four million um and it was it was so intense and it was kind of i felt like my brain was going to explode and I was, I was really, really battling hard with severe anxiety at the time um, because I, I, I felt like I was failing. I mm-hmm. felt like, wait, I've always been able to do this. I've always been able to do the long hours, that like the through the night working to kind of get your deadline in for the next day. And, and I was slowly but surely, I was getting weaker and weaker and then the anxiety was getting worse, the attacks were getting worse. And I, I was really struggling and balancing everything. And it was a it wasn't so much a point at that point that i was like i'm gonna do this for myself it was actually more of a i've got to stop this for my health yeah i need i need some time out and um i, ha- I had to leave because of you know situations and things and so i did i left i i went traveling for a month um for a, they gave me a sabbatical just to kind of like reset. reset which was important and then on that sabbatical i was just it was so clear i was like I I can't go back into this, in this scenario and situation. And then I left and had to kind of take some time out to just really kind of bring myself back round, had some great life coaching, um, dealt with all the anxiety, um, spoke to all my friends quite openly about it at that point because I wasn't then embarrassed about it. I was was able to talk about it and I was actually fighting it. And then from that point, I was like, okay, I think I'm ready now. I'm going to take it slow. I'm going to have my own consultancy business and just see what comes. I didn't have a website, didn't have an Instagram. It was just, you know, word of mouth. Um, And then things were really picking up again. And I felt like I was back in my stride. And I was like, right, I'm ready to go. Um, Got to the beginning of 2020 um, with some incredible projects that I was working on for the year. And I was like, right back. This is so exciting. And then doo-doo, 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 boom. the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hmm. Interesting. And I remember there was I actually so I went to uh Cheltenham. I actually think I got COVID at Cheltenham. Um because I then had COVID after that. Um but on that day I remember just looking around and people's like the everyone was nervous and there was just this weird vibe in like the events industry, and that was like one of the last big it scale was. events. That and happened, I was kind of looking around. And I was like, "How?" End. I was like, "How is this actually happening?" Yeah. You know, if if countries are shutting down and we're having an event, and I, I remember just looking around and just thinking, "This isn't going to be good," and "This isn't going to be good for our industry." And then on that day, I had um, a 20, 25th birthday for a client in London, and they pulled it. It was all paid for. It was in a week's time, and they were like, "No." even if we can have this it's socially not right for us as a, as a family to be throwing this party because if somebody gets covid at this event we don't want to be in the press for that like you know private private family throw party and super super spreading event to 200 people so we canceled it and i remember just sitting at home and thinking well one i thought i was depressed but actually i actually just had covid and i just felt awful and i was i slept for 3 days solid um but two I was kind of like, this isn't going to bounce back. This isn't gonna be, a... because everyone everyone in the industry at the time, so this was March, and we, we postponed that event in March to September. It's just gonna be the summer, then everything will be back, everything will be normal come September, no worries about it. And I remember being like, hmm, okay. And I have my own flight in London, but it's tiny weenie. Um, and then the lockdown kind of was pending. So I packed a bag for a month and moved back home to the north with mum and dad. And I was like, I'll just go for a month. A year later, I came back to London. Wow. And it was the weirdest time for me. I I honestly think I'll always look back on that time as as a time that our generation went through a war. Like yeah. it was almost like that was our war. Well, yeah. you had to stay home and there was no communication. There was There was no work and there was no... My, my fast-paced life that I'd lived for 12 years stopped. Yeah, My phone stopped, my clients didn't contact me, I wasn't on the end of a WhatsApp 100% of the time, and I did not know what to do with myself. I literally, my poor parents, I drove them insane. I literally was like, right, today we're going to reorganise the garden. <laughs> today we're going to, like, I renovated the whole house. And they were like, will you stop? I was like, I can't and sit everyone still. Everyone had a pristine garden. Yeah, exactly. DIY. I literally was like, I've just got to do something because it." Well, there wasn't even anything that I could be working on because there was no sign of it ever coming back anytime soon. And this September date that kind of everyone in the industry had as like oh as if like this was just going to go everyone's just going to have a summer and that was going to go away and then life will resume in september and it just didn't it just didn't go away um and at the time i was director of weddings at gizzen park um so again we were dealing with every single can- cancellation um i was doing that on a consultancy basis so i'd rebranded and repositioned the whole of the weddings at and park and cancelled all the weddings having to deal with very 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 upset bride and grooms who they were just devastated and again we moved some of those to the september thinking well we'll be fine and some of the weddings actually we ended up moving three times which it's just so emotionally draining for the couples to kind of go through that it's it's happening no it's not happening it's happening no it's not happening and it i just it was so hard to kind of give advice to these couples when i was talking utter shit to be honest just had to put a brief day and be like no it's gonna be great everything's gonna be fine thinking i know damn fine this isn't gonna be fine but if it is fine then we need to ensure that they've got a date because also then there was the panic book of weddings from people that had just got engaged that hadn't yet got a venue so they were like oh my gosh we need a date so it was it, that was a whole thing. Were there, were there any days? And I actually think most people
0: in the events industry must have thought this at least one day when you thought of just quitting events altogether because it was so so unclear whether it was coming back. Yeah. You kind of realised the the crazy lifestyle that you do have to live to run events. So did you have a day when you thought this this is it? I'm going to yeah. do something else.
1: I actually and actually being home, I hadn't been home more than like a, a long weekend or Christmas um, since I was 18, and to one be I'd lived on my own for four years in my flat and so to actually then move back into my bedroom with my parents like it was a real shift of dynamic for all of us to have to kind of be living in each other's presence as adults and but then I kind of was almost convincing myself that this country lifestyle and living back at home actually I could do this Yeah. yeah this is this is kind of and I was it was a weird kind of convincing of maybe I need a slower paced life maybe this is good for me actually like I do feel better without the kind of stress and the pressure and everything else and and I remember mum and dad and I kind of like talking to them about it and they were like categorically you are not moving back home after everything you have done in your career to be where you are and have your house in London and your network in London like you're not just handing this in like there's no way and I was like oh I thought you'd be quite happy about me coming. They're <laughs> like, "No." And then uh, that's kind of where the the idea and the de- development of Gizm Park pop-up came from. Yeah. And it was it all started um because my dad um he bought a line marking robot before lockdown. A what? Yeah. A line marking what? robot. So what my, does that do? <laughs> so my dad is my dad does pitches and um kind of turf care and he's a line marker but standard old school line marking of pitches that you spend four hours on a football pitch with, you know, string measurements and make sure it's all straight and everything else. And just before the pandemic, he bought a little robot that is all done on GPRS and you fill it with paint and you, you've got 150 different templates. You can you can even do a Quidditch pitch if you wanted to. <laughs> and basically you you locate your pitch um, from your your iP- that this iPad that's connected to it and you press go and off it off it goes and paints it perfectly straight and perfectly anyway obviously the worst time to buy a robot that does that when nobody's <laughs> doing sport <laughs> so dad runs one of uh dad he runs Clovero rubber club and you know which also i laugh at now i'm like do you remember the time when we were only allowed out an hour a day so mad, wild <laughs> like, um so dad disappeared for more than an hour i will be honest um And me and mum were like, where has he gone? He called me and was like, I'll come come down to the rubber club. Um, I want to show you something. So I went down to the rubber club and he'd written on the pitch using his trusty little robot we call Ollie, Optimus line, (laughs) O-L-I. It was a big family (laughs) discussion about what was the name of the robot. And he'd written a whole message to the NHS because you could do lettering. And it said, thank you to the NHS from CRUFC. And I was like, this is insane. So I got one of my friends to then drone shot the actual message and I took a load of videos of Ollie kind of doing his thing. Edited a little video for him. And then took over his social media because, once again, I had nothing else to do. I had to so do something to focus. My dad's pitch care Instagram and Twitter was <laughs> <laughs> me learning all these, like, terminologies. And all of his <laughs> friends were like, who's running your social media? It was like, my daughter. Like, okay, that is what she's doing, and we pay her in wine and food. <laughs> <laughs> a good deal, yeah. a good deal. But this video, we, we launched it, the video on Clap for Heroes, and it went viral. Wow. <laughs> and then Manchester United got in touch and Liverpool got in touch to then... Oh, yeah. I did the, you know, on the the YN, you'll never stand alone. The yeah, NHS logo.
0: That's wow. me and my dad.
1: <laughs> wow. So they got in touch to then do this NHS logo in the middle of the pitches, and again, that was at the time that you could only be with your family members. Yeah. So I'd gone from travelling the world, planning million pound parties, to being my dad's peg girl in the middle of Manchester United and Liverpool pitch, pegging out where he had to send off his blooming. Ro- robot to write the NHS logo I remember standing there we were the only people in Old Trafford and the only people at Anfield which was incredible and I was like "Ah, uh, how has my life changed <laughs> I was like dealing with like different paint nozzles and like but then um I then started doing my dad's website and learning about this robot and all the different functions and templates and one of the templates was a car park template so you could press go and off it went and painted a grid formation And then my very clear mind at the time started kind of going off the back of that and thinking, right, well, if you could paint a grid, then surely there's a design that I could come up with that people could then be in the pod in the grid. Then Um, you're a bubble of six at the time, so then hexagons, six-sided hexagon. My brother's an architect and a set designer, so I made him design this kind of hexagon grid formation, which was almost like a honeycomb. But each edge of the hexagon was two metres distance. And each hexagon was then placed two metres apart at every point. So with six people in a hexagon, you and everyone on the corners, you were technically still socially distanced. And then you were then socially distanced from your next pod next to you because that was two metres away. And then where we do the weddings at Gisborne, there's a beautiful valley. Um, And so I kind of dropped it on a floor plan. Um, and me and my brother were just playing around with some designs and and then it kind of came around we were kind of it was do you remember it was beautiful weather like yeah. insanely beautiful weather um, so we are like maybe we could do some sort of like bar on the river or something then I spoke to Matty Evans do you know Matty from NTRP Yeah. so he's a really good friend of mine and I called him I was like right I've got this wild idea so I've come up with this like grid formation and that everything will be table service and basically do like a big stage. Do you reckon any of the DJs that you do your touring for would come and DJ? And it was like, well, there's no harm in asking. Got nothing else to do. Yeah. <laughs> so then all of a sudden I had Jonas Blue, um, Sam Divine, Shapeshifters, Hot since 82. Um, who was the, there was like, Five that confirmed straight off the bat and I was like right these people are coming to Gisborne yeah in the middle of nowhere and I'm now doing an event for them I was like shit <laughs> what have I done and then we started kind of developing it and then we launched it I mean it was it was it was three weeks from concept to launch um, what? Yeah, that is insane. It is. I I know. I realized a lot now. of time to yeah. There was spend a lot of time, yeah. Um, but that was also like marketing people also thinking, you know, what is this event? We're in a pandemic. How, you know, I'm not going to go to it. And then the press hit, and I, I remember the morning vividly when the headline came out: the UK's first social distance festival and I was like fuck I'm doing a festival I didn't mean to do a (laughs) festival I was like oh god oh god this was just meant to be like a bar on the river and with some you know nice music and oh no and then it was 260 headlines globally we're in the New York Times we're in China uh, Australia everything and then we had that first weekend and actually we we started the build and and we didn't actually have confirmation from Boris at the time. Yeah. that we could actually could actually so have you live to, performance. You had to take the risk anyway.
0: And being- there, was, there was a lot of risk. It yeah. went
1: on. And um and yeah, so Boris gave the go-ahead on live live entertainment in a socially distanced venue twenty-four hours before our first day. Wow. I was like, thank you. <laughs> Someone So then you kinda of have to read and digest that guidance and work out kind of what applies to the oh, site gosh. as well. In I mean, twenty four hours. In twenty four hours. And it was it was very it was constantly changing and, th- and once we launched I mean the first weekend was very quiet. it was very much kind of friends and family and you know because people didn't believe it was happening so it, a lot of people it was it, our biggest thing on social media was oh is this the new fire festival yeah and it, everybody thought it was a scam yeah. because who is managing to do a festival when festivals aren't allowed to happen and it's a pandemic <laughs> yoohoo <laughs> nice to meet you <laughs> the crazy person Um, And then when people started to see the content on social media, um, and we had Oscar, who's one of my best friends now, he was a genius in turning content around. So even on the weekend, so we had a build video released and then the first event was released immediately. So people could actually see it was, oh my, this is actually happening. And that's where the snowball kind of came from in terms of the press, because there was no other press out there. There was nothing to to write about about or talk about. So that's why it kind of went so quickly. So then by the second weekend, we were seventy percent full. But we were doing eight events a week. So Wednesday night was Cinema Night. Um Wednesday sorry, Wednesday daytime we had a family show. So it was like Disney sing along and it was great, it was very wholesome. <laughs> um but I mean twelve weeks in and we did that twice a week. I was pretty much done with baby shark let it go is ringing around julia it was baby shark every time Baby shark, i was like no no please no um so that was wednesday wednesday night was film night thursday night was cinema night as well uh friday daytime we did kind of like a proms in the parks so it was like live music jazz singers pianists, and we did that for kind of the older crowd which actually didn't go it wasn't very busy because we hadn't appreciated that the older crowd would Definitely not going to leave the house. Like yeah. they were very nervous. Friday night was then entertainment evening, so we had a Beether orchestra, symphonic Ibiza. Um We had a greater showman evening, Queen tribute. Are you
0: programming? Like, what's the team at this point? So you programming the whole thing? Yeah, and running it. Yeah, in yeah, yeah, like, one man, one woman band.
1: So I had three other business partners. Um, Will was doing the um, website, and then Guy just own um, own the estate. Um. But yes, it was very much kind of we were a very small team, and it was a lot of late nights because what not only were we focusing on like the first weekend to launch, there was it was meant to only be for a month, yeah. so we were kind of going ahead and programming and selling and marketing and dealing with ticket revenue. So for me, going from private events where your your client just pays you bill one hundred percent upfront before you even step foot onto a venue, I was playing, I was going backwards from. I need the money in from revenue for an event that hasn't even started or doesn't exist and nobody even believes in so I I personally um, invested quite a lot to kind of get it off the ground um, and so that's a big change going from starting from
0: huge scale corporate events as you say the kind of the people are going to be there you just need to make sure it's an amazing experience yeah flipping that on, on its head to then festivals and events which is very much B2C and yeah. selling tickets is, is no mean feat but then also it's almost like you've in what was a crisis for, for so many people you've actually found an opportunity yeah. in that and despite all the odds actually started a festival in the middle of a, a pandemic yeah. and not just one festival
1: how many was it a week? <laughs> 8 events a week for 12 weeks for 12 weeks,
0: okay or go, <laughs> go hard or go know, home literally. as they say
1: I remember on the first, uh, when Hot Sense two turned up and his tour manager came up to me <laughs> and said, um, hi, um, who's the promoter? I said, oh, well, actually we do our own promoting. It's all like in-house. I didn't know what the terminology of promoter was. Yeah. Because I'm an event producer in the private events world. You don't call yourself a promoter because you're not selling. And so I was like spilling off all this, like, oh no, we just like, we actually do our own like marketing and stuff. And he was like, no, like, the promoter. And I was like, um, I think you might be meaning me. I'm the director. And he was like, right. I was like, I'm Robin. Oh, yeah, you're, you're the promoter. I was like, good to know I'm now the promoter. Another, Great. Another hat to put yeah, on. Yeah, I was like, okay. And then every week, you know, when we had everyone, like, Salado and everyone was like, oh, yeah, who's the promoter? I'm like, me. That would <laughs> be me. I get it now. I am a promoter. And I remember Matty as well being like, um, Rob's you know... <laughs> um have you got your accreditation sorted i was like okay <laughs> i was like what's accreditation he was like you are you are joking me i was like this is the, d- the day before we launched wow and i was You've like literally done it the other way yeah. around. Yeah, and so i was crazy. like i don't know what you're talking about it's like triple a's you know production passes staff passes i was like mhm mhm okay do we need to order them <laughs> the <laughs> so, day before yeah <laughs> so literally went to the local printers had them all laminated had them on like uh Lanyards, and I was like, "Now we have accreditation, people." <laughs> <laughs> like it was like the running joke of the uh, the summer. Has everybody got their accreditation? It's <laughs> like, and he was like, "You need triple A escort." I was like, "That is racy." I was so like who's,
0: who's guiding you through all of this then? How Matty,
1: you- Matty was amazing. um He jumped in because obviously, normally he is all around the world with Jonas Blue and Swedish House Mafia, and yeah, you know, dealing with like big things. And then all of a sudden, he finds himself in Gisborne. Yeah. <laughs> dealing with a 350 cap festival that's socially distanced, but he was amazing because I ran it like a private event, and so it was very kind of high end in the fact that you put up a flag and the the staff member walked over and every like it was gourmet food and and I think that's why it worked. But then he ran the kind of the crooks, and so he knew all about the the COVID rules, so that the stage, how many people were on stage, you know the. <laughs> In between DJ switchovers, the whole DJ decks had to be sanitized, so the music had to come down. All of those things that he was incredible in guiding and mentoring, and I mean, there were some heated moments between the two of us because we sometimes clashed. In like, I was like, "No, it needs to be," and he was like, "Robin, okay, I'll
0: stick with
1: my accreditation." Compromise and meet in the middle. Um, but it was kind of a baptism of fire because not only was I dealing with on-site, so I was on-site for every single event throughout the whole um series um i was then dealing with the the programming the suppliers the invoicing everything and you know it was too much to, t- to take on um yeah. and you know we made some we made mistakes we did not make money in the summer and it was a huge we were only meant to do it for a month and then there was then the lancashire lockdown so nothing else was open apart from us so i was like well we've now got momentum we're now selling out every weekend so we'll extend another month so that was into august and then by that point we were sell out every saturday and we had sunny federa salado i mean we had like the biggest djs eats everything the, the whole lot and i remember just being like this is mental that this is all happening one it's my event and two in gisborne like in a tiny little down did that, did, that, did that feel like a risk going into
0: something one that you didn't really know but I feel like you've you've gone from a from an industry you've been so successful in with and then when you kind of you know a, a, it's fair to say most events probably don't make money in the in the first uh the first year or the first few months so what was making you stick with events at that point because it sounds stressful you've got to learn all this new stuff yeah why why stick with it I think
1: I was just determined not to be um kind of you know boxed into this the events industry is dead I was like that. I, I I don't take well to being told no and I was like if I can find out a way to make it work that yes we didn't make money but my god I provided jobs I had security I had chefs I had waiting staff I had production teams that were stacking shelves in Tesco and they you know I had one of the best lighting designers that usually is on tour with like, the biggest artist and he was at Gisborne and so the team that we had was like the rock star team in the industry. Who, without that event, would have would have probably left the industry yeah. because, you know, no one was earning money. And also, just it was when we kind of went into it, the joy and the feedback that we were getting drove us to do more because it was like the first time. You, sometimes like you could see like friends joining for the first time that they'd seen each other and it was quite an emotional kind of like oh my god we're out
0: yeah
1: and it was hard work i mean it was a, it was like i'd basically painted a magic line on the floor and everybody had to stay within their hexagon and we had a saying and it was a bit of a saying that it was stay in your fucking hexagon <laughs> and you it was a three-strike rule and if you were told once it was kind of like guys you need to stay in your hexagon." if you're told twice you were then put on a final warning third time you were out and I was very happy to throw people out because I was kind of like if you're willing to pay a ticket which is quite expensive and then break the rules which will then jeopardise my licence and this entire event happening get out get get away from my event I don't want you here because you aren't respecting that this is the only thing that's happening in the UK so go so the first few weeks people kind of tested it but then after that it was kind of like if you want to be here just be here and do the rules and they yeah. did um, so yeah I mean that was fun just telling people constantly Stay in Stay in <laughs> I was like I mean it's a, it's literally like a magic and actually on the kids shows um, Mary Poppins came onto stage before at the start of every kids show and explained to the kids that it was a magical line because the kids were harder like they were 10 times harder to deal with than yeah. the adults because they were just like ping ping, 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 ping. and I was like so we made it a magical line that you couldn't step over and all these kids were like, <laughs> The floor is lava yeah, outside the Mexico, Damn it, I should have used that one. <laughs> Damn. That would have been great. So, yeah, so then um, summer summer it ended up being 12 weeks and then after it, it was kind of, you know, then the, the, the clean-up of the, all the invoices that kind of came in and stuff and then it was the realisation of, wow, like, we didn't make money and I owed people money, Um so then this like the anxiety of the the high of kind of running the event and all the press and everything else and everybody thinking that it was the the biggest success and it was the biggest success because we managed to do it but financially it wasn't and so then I then had to kind of really kind of dig deep and figure out like how am I going to get myself out of this we're still in a pandemic so then I just had to start being creative so and this up- is all on your shoulders all yeah.
0: all kind of yeah Lots to think about. Lot
1: to think about. So then I came up with a drive in fireworks night. Yeah. So literally 350 cars drove in and we set off fireworks in the field in front of them. And we had the local radio station do like the whole radio station for that night there and had everyone beeping like, um, with like music. So the radio was like pumped into everyone's cars so everyone could hear the music. Oh, cool. Um, so we did that. And then for Christmas, I launched social distance Santa's Grotto, socially distanced. Uh, Christmas market it was all one way systems and so complicated and then um, a drive in pantomime which kudos to Pop of Entertainment and their incredible cast they did 12 pantomimes on an open stage in the north <laughs> in December one of the days it snowed oh. and they were in costume and they absolutely smashed the pants off it and I'm surprised that none of them got Pneumonia. <laughs> I was like layered up, like literally, like coat, like yeah, everything, yeah. hat, wellies, and they're in like a little like prancing around outfit. And I was like, "How? How are you alive? Like, how are you okay?" Oh my god. Um, and then yeah, and then we did uh, Maybank Holiday Weekender this year. Um, and after that, we we kind of cleared the decks with what we owed everybody, and we we pulled it back, and it was a kind of i was exhausted by the end of it but it was one of the most i think it was probably the biggest achievement of my entire life to kind of do that whole thing but also just kind of understanding from a very different side of the world that i worked in with kind of the money and the private event stuff like how hard it is in the festival world yeah to one make money and to manage every element because if you're sales aren't there you've still got your infrastructure and that very fine line of not getting it quite right and then literally everything is there um and that's actually what happened with my second festival that i launched so yeah that was my
0: next question so you've, you've gone through all of the the trials and tribulations of going into festivals but then doing that socially distance which which brings its own challenges what's next what are you thinking like are you wanting to stick at this are you thinking I want to change it up a bit shall I just yeah. wait till things come back to normal <laughs> most
1: people would be like never again me let's launch another one <laughs> yeah okay what, so what that one? I launched a second festival called the Estate Festival with um, two incredible business partners Josh and Sam so Sam used to be the head of marketing for Defected okay. um, and social media so he, and he'd kind of Guided me and he'd helped out massively with my marketing techniques um for Gisborne. So he kind of told me how to do things and how to drive sales if sales went there and tactics of, you know, almost like gaslighting slightly and yeah. stuff like that, which was again a whole new world for me. I'd I'd never sent a mailer out so he told me how to like do the mailing thing. And is this you? Is this you doing it every day? Did you have a team around you? A I team had um Sarah who worked for me at the time doing the socials, but it was basically yeah wow so that was a whole new like you know the the hidden adverts didn't even know you could do that how clever <laughs> now i'm like like actually target all these with, people i know wild
0: <laughs> the dark arts yeah. of social media um
1: i mean we went through the first month and a half and then when i started speaking to sam about it um he was like oh can i can i look into your facebook uh, man, business manager page we didn't even have it set up, so we weren't even tracking all of the data. We hadn't, we didn't have Google Pixels, we didn't have any of that background stuff. And he was like, what? He's <laughs> like, right, we need to set this up quick. So then, um, and then Josh, my other business partner, I've worked with for seven years, and he's got one of the most incredible catering companies in London, Opus 11. Um, So then we kind of got our heads, and actually Josh and his partner, Charlie, came to the north for the whole of the series and worked for me, and we all had a staff house and lived there. So I had quite a lot of people from London that came up um, in major who were major in the events industry that to kind of help out. And so then we put our heads together and the biggest thing that came out of Gisborne was um, that the feedback was that people wanted the concept to stay. Because mm. essentially it was table service at a festival. So each hexagon had its own furniture and there was a VIP section at the front which was all sofas and the table service was bottle service so you bottles of vodka champagne and so you had your own area no one was pushing you no one was coming near you and you were watching your favourite DJ right in front of you so our our kind of audience capture was 25 to 45 55 we skipped the 18 to 25 one we were at we, we almost like outpriced them mm. and two like it, they it, it wasn't for them it was for the older kind of generation that want something a bit nicer but still want to have a party and so we kind of got got our heads thinking around it and then came up with the the estate festival which the idea of the estate festival was this year was to launch in the pandemic because again you know you're you've, you've got the minority so sorry you'll have the monopoly um and so we did and it was going to run for four weeks um it was a bigger cap, so it was six hundred and fifty cap. Um we built a glamping village for seventy people. I built a swimming pool which nearly killed me with a bar at the put like a swim up, a swim up to bar in the glamping village. We had a restaurant on the river um and then a huge stage set up. Um and again we you know it was like it was more of a kind of weekend thing. So you'd come for the whole weekend, you'd do the glamping, you'd go to the restaurant for your breakfast. We then did after parties in the restaurant for and anyone that was staying or VIP could then go there, and it was just to kind of like level up. But the idea of it was, and still is, is that we got the reputation and we built the crowd in the south. Um, that we were then outside of the pandemic, which is what we're working on now, is to then create. We will be the first VIP festival, basically. So it will the the concept will will remain the same. There will be VIP areas at the front of the stage there will be a small dance floor that we're going to add into areas so then there is areas to dance but essentially it's going to be a table service festival Great. and it works like people- attention
0: to detail just listening to you describe it as insane so yeah that's what you've come from
1: and and that's the difference and i think when the artists came to gisborne and to the estate you know the backstage area would have a butler for them and they were well looked after and they could have anything. And our food was, we had steak and uh, steak and chips, like beautiful steak and chips and poke bowls and actual food that you wanted to eat instead of it being like, oh, okay, let's have, you know, burger or... Yeah,
0: herded like cattle into a field. Exactly, and, and just, there was vegan options everything.
1: and there was vegetarian options. There was everything. So we, we kind of catered for the crowd that we wanted to get there. And we're sponsored by Moet and Belvedere. So it was, it, it was just... An, and because it was all the same people in terms of kind of they wanted the same experience. So they were there buying bottles, Magnums, whatever else, and eating nice food. They didn't feel threatened by the next table who would come and swipe the drinks because everybody had their own situation and they were very happy in their own situation Yeah, and happy to actually have a bit of space and don't come near me and, you know, stay away. Um, so, yeah, so off the back of that, we're, we're then going to kind of create this kind of VIP party feel with a with a, with the festival edge obviously we're not we're not going to compete with like the big festivals but we don't need to we don't want to it's That's, a more boutique experience yeah, exactly
0: i'm sold where do i get a
1: <laughs> it sounds like, unreal it is good and, and actually all the djs really loved it because like when they came you know we always looked after them and their friends and they were actually like this is a festival that i want to attend because yeah. i don't want to stand in a field with fifty thousand people and be crushed to the front obviously everybody does love that and i'll never ever take away from that I've, i still go to festivals and stuff but it's just the niche it's kind of it's and that's where like the nice Mary is it's like i've gone the other way around i've gone private events and brought that into the festival yeah. area instead of going festival private events
0: and did you even realize you were doing that in the process because <laughs> it's like there's, there's obviously a niche there but you know not at all. Of the market or anything? You just kind of went with just both went with intuition, it. <laughs> put it on?
1: Yeah. No, um, I, I didn't. Um, and I didn't realise um, that I was actually doing that. And I think it was more so when when I was talking to the tour managers and the DJs and they were like, this is just the the, the best run festival because everything was kind of like, hello, nice to meet you. and You yeah. know, like my staff were well presented and everything, everything just felt kind of organised to them. And obviously that was off the back of me doing multi-million pound parties and that's the norm to me so I think it's it's been a it's been a learning curve my god
0: <laughs> it, it's so tough starting a new brand but I think starting a new brand in a pandemic as you said trust from, from people and events was just an absolute rock bottom yeah. you get the kind of fire festival vibe and then People have been through so many cancellations and reschedule. Like, I've still got things I've not even been to yet. I don't even know when they are. Yeah. <laughs> like I'll just hope I get an email yeah. on the week because I can't keep up with it. Yeah. But how did you find building, I guess, two new brands? And, you know, you say you, you weren't getting up, up to speed with things like Facebook until later on. So how did you reach people? How did you get it out there?
1: If that was the thing. I think... Um With Gizmo, when it first went, because of the amount of press, I was on BBC twice and then ITV. So everybody read about it, saw about it. So that that drove that. Um, But then it kind of plateaued, and that's where Sam then helped me out with the techniques in pushing your sales, which I'd never learnt before, and how you... Don't don't always on your Instagram sell 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 because then people your engagement goes down. It has to be kind of like interesting for them to be engaged, and yeah. then you drop in the sell. Well, you've got
0: cause that is the kind of go to that people revert to. I need sellers tickets. I've booked these amazing DJs. Let's talk about like tickets and the product all the time but yeah. your experience is so unique and you've got like like even you telling me about that now it sounds amazing and it's like you need to tell it's a balance of like a bit of stealing, explaining yeah. like what the vibe is like who you are as an event why you're here yeah. and then oh also we've got tickets and then it to come to this amazing thing but feeding people down that funnel I think is so important rather than just going straight to just the exactly and I
1: think just taking on board everything that Sam's learned through defected um obviously they are the pioneers in selling yeah <laughs> they love could. to pick his brain yeah he's great fun um and you know obviously defective won some lost some but now they're killing him. Him. And it. i think in the pandemic they were the they shining so Sam. yeah so sam was behind all the streams right, and okay. everything so he he literally has been like my mentor in being cool in wow. the social media yeah world. give me his number <laughs> and, and
0: give him a call because they you know obviously when when events couldn't happen i think they've uh, you know it's almost like a the media house now isn't it like it's yeah. just they're just so at the heart of that culture that scene the content output is ridiculous yeah. and yes they sell records yes they sell events yeah. but that comes last yeah. like they are the the heart of house music scene across yeah. the world but it's just they're just so relentless with the content and everything to do with that well they grew i think culture. they grew a million
1: followers in uh, lockdown wow which is you know testament to them then yeah. as a brand and again pivoting and being the first to kind of be like right if you can't go to a club we'll bring the club to your room yeah and they were the first to kind of do that you know the defected live streams that's i remember watching one of the defected live streams and i watched melee and i messaged sam and i was like i want melee uh-huh. I, i'd never i'd never heard of him i didn't know who he was and then i got melee i got him on my event with um for in may with eats everything Amazing. and so that whole you know Introduction to D- DJs that they did and everything that was just incredible to kind of watch from afar and then have Sam's kind of like input. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but with the um, the estate festival, the first weekend that we were meant to do, which was um, in May, um, it was the wettest May on record, so I couldn't get my trucks in. So we had to make the decision to pull the first weekend. But what I was kind of going back and saying about, you know, if your ticket sales aren't there, but your infrastructure still is we had a million pound infrastructure for that festival because it was four weeks, so we lost a weekend. But we were like, we can make this back in the three. The second weekend was amazing, third weekend, incredible sellout. And our final weekend, we had Pete Tong, uh, Frankie wah and Ariel, and uh, Joel Cory booked. Um, and the weekend before, three months worth of rain fell in one day, mm. and my whole site was underwater. I was knee deep in water. Welcome to British Festival. So uh, So had to get a structural stage engineer down to actually measure the safety of the stage. And I was told that if there was continuing gusts over 14 miles an hour, I had to evacuate. And how do you handle that situation? Because I think I'm it's very, very how you react in those situations. Yeah. I'm a very calm event manager until until you cross me, then you you'll see my wrath. But in those situations, I'm very kind of like I process the information in my head. I might then go behind a building and burst into tears. But I have I think I've always... And this is something that Johnny Roxburgh actually taught me. It's like, if you are the head and you've got an entire team of people looking up to you to kind of give them the answer and tell them everything's going to be okay, you cannot in that moment wobble. Yep. Because if you wobble, the pot wash wobbles. It trickles so far down to oh my gosh something's going to you know yeah. and then the whole event you're on you're on a wobbling playing field so as a you know as a director as a manager as as that top head where you are seen to kind of be you've just got to you've got to take it and i remember everybody came into my room my room in because we had like a director's house my room was like the morning meeting <laughs> everyone would be like in and out in and out and um i just remember my head barman's coming in was like robin we've got a problem and it was about 7 a.m. Because they were always up at first to get breakfast ready. And I was like, what? And they were like, it's raining hard. I was like, how hard? And they were like, it, "It it's not stopping. And I was like, okay. And we all looked at every single weather plan we could. And it was just 100% rain for the whole day. And I put my coat up and my wellies on. And two minutes of outside, I was dripping, like drenched. It was, it was like when the heavens opened. And, you know, usually it, like, passes. Yeah. It didn't pass. For 8 hours the river burst its banks um, my restaurant was underwater Like everything was just and this is like a boutique glamorous festival yeah that was just ruined everything was ruined the you couldn't get to the main stage my whole of my vip and backstage area you couldn't get you, the 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 loo's were underwater the the whole tp of backstage was knee deep in water everything just floating around and i just it was one of the most gutting feelings because we'd would we been on a kind of track of, you know, we'd lost the first weekend, which was a massive blow. And then obviously then the second weekend became our first weekend, which is always going to be the quietest weekend to then get your brand up and going. Mm. Second weekend, fantastic. And then the final weekend, it was a sellout. And then we just, had, we had to pull it. had to cancel. And it was so hard to deal with at the time. And, I was I was so upset and so broken because there was nothing that we could have done. P- some people said oh you know you could have you could have stayed open but the the whole of the week running up to that weekend was um planned for rain. Mm-hmm. So if there was any more rain and I would then have had to have evacuated which I would have then still have had to have paid all the you know everything then a, a knock on effect. Yeah. So we made the call. Then we tried to reschedule it in August, um, but then the council turned around and said, no, um, you need 40, uh, 56 days for your EMP to be submitted. And I was like, well, it's 48, and you've already got the EMP. It's a reschedule. No. And so then and then we were in September, which was, we couldn't compete with festival season at, oh, that, point. Coming back at that point. Man. So then we launched um, Halloween. But again, we've just had problem after problem after problem with um, council and checking of the land just to make sure it doesn't flood again because it's October. So we've just had to kind of drop tools ever so slightly with that one. Um, we've we've refunded the guests, which again obviously is quite a hard thing to do when you've had to cancel, you've rolled over the tickets, but then there's no event. So we've, we've had to kind of figure out ways of making it work. And now we're just kind of like resetting and then going to... Going to come back fighting,
0: yeah.
1: I think that mindset is so important because I think if if you're ever going into festivals, you
0: just need to expect shit is going to happen. Yeah. and it's if you constantly react to the things that yeah. happen, you're at the mercy of your environment. Correct. But if you, the only thing you control is can control is, is how you react to things. Exactly. Well. And I
1: think with this uh, with the Halloween thing, you know, there was too many things that were not quite right and it's it's making that call early enough before getting yourself into an even bigger problem and just being like right let's just drop tools down tools reset reconfigure where do we want to take this business what do we want our brand to be what do we want to be known for and then let's focus on doing that and doing it well so that's where we're at, at the moment with that one <laughs> okay
0: amazing so you are where you are now. I think it'd be good to know what, what's the uh, what's end goal when you look at yourself. And I know someone's asked you for your five year plan. Yeah. So I'm going to ask, <laughs> you yeah. know, let's say 10, 20 year plan. What, where do you want to be?
1: Well, outside of the festivals, obviously, I've got my events, travel, and concierge company, which has just gone mental. Everybody yeah. wants to party. Everybody wants to travel trip. Everybody wants to go to a sporting event. So that's been amazing that that's kind of gone whoosh. Um, So I think in five years, I'd love for a kind of, you know, creative hub somewhere in London um, and in the north, you know, two branches, because I I do love doing things in the north. I've now got a real great kind of network of people that trust my events that I put on up there. um, Of like-minded people. So, you know, I just envisage this really creative office that is... My events and travel and concierge team, along with the festival team, along with Josh's um, catering team, along with you know Sam and a digital agency that we're all in the same mindset. We're all fighting for each other. We're all supporting each other. We're all feeding each other um, clients and knowledge and everything, and just doing fucking cool shit like whether it is a million pound party or more, more festivals more festivals yeah. or um, you know just everything and that's kind of where I want to that's my end goal is to to merge this kind of p- private versus festival versus digital versus everything and kind of feed each other because I think the input of the private events industry into the festival industry is a, a bonus yeah. and equally they the resilience of the the festival industry and also like the management of your costs and knowing, you know, I think the private industry is quite, I think everyone will be quite honest to say that you're pretty frivolous with your costs because it's you just kind of, you know, you go for the best, the best, the best, the best, the best. Yeah, yeah. But actually taking into account some of the smaller startup companies, the, you know, spreading the load slightly and just being a bit more cost conscious that's one of the biggest things I'll take away from the festival industry so yeah so just having something that is everyone's feeding each other but we're all kind of end goal is just putting on great parties great festivals and yeah. having a ball yeah do you
0: think you'll do it forever do you see yourself as a, a granny yeah put an event on
1: <laughs> all my family are always like when are you gonna stop I'm like hmm, hmm, hmm. I, think my, I get I get my work ethic from my mom and dad though because yeah. they they they're such hard workers and they're still working and I think I I don't, I can't, I, I mean, I tried to sit still for a year and it didn't happen, I put on a bloody festival. So <laughs> I don't know when it's going to stop, yeah. <laughs>
0: but we'll see. Oh, Wickers, I can't wait to, uh, to keep watching your journey. One last question. Yep. You've been through some mad challenges and some <laughs> crazy scenarios, but if you if you look back, would you change anything at all or would you keep it as it is?
1: Do you know what, I'll keep it as it is. I think I've learned some t- some things the hard way. I think other th- other things I have... I've had incredible opportunities thrown my way, Um, you know, with certain clients that have then opened up doors to like the the travel and the luxury side of things. Um, I think one thing I would very, very be way more kind of um, cautious about is who you go into business with. Mm. Um, Because we're, especially in our industry, and especially with the pressure that our industry, Especially in the festival industry, I mean, the pressure of that is just another level. And um, you've got to know that that your business partners have got your back. Yeah. Um. And that might not have been the case in the last year or so. Yeah. Um. And that you've got to you've got to know that through every high, every low. You know, mm. when we flooded at the estate, it was the three of us—me, Sam, and Josh—together. Yeah. Dealing with it and sharing the load of our emotions across each other and pr- protecting each other and having that is, that w- that will change everything for you um yeah. in terms of you know being being sane <laughs> F- finger pointing becomes so easy when she get yeah. to the band, isn't it? exactly and, and it's like it's everyone's problem it's, every- it's, it's yeah, no exactly. one's fault it's, it's no like, one's fault yeah, yeah. um and if and if you're in it if you're in a kind of working relationship that that happens it's really really hard to kind of deal with um so that's the only thing that I would change everything else the highs the lows the losing of the money the making of the money (laughs) the everything I wouldn't change any of it because I don't think I think if I think if Gisborne had been a huge success financially first time around I think I would have gone into the next one very jaded yeah, um, as like, oh, it's a huge success. Everything's fine. When actually, I've I've gone the other way around and yeah. actually learned, and I, and I remember actually it was Andy Rayside. Um, it was we were stood on the stage and he said to me, he was like, you know, fair play to you putting on a festival. Festivals don't make money for the first three years. I was like, sorry, what? I was like, did somebody want to tell me that before <laughs> I launched a festival disclaimer? Yeah, <laughs> damn it, it was really small in the small print. Um. And, yeah, so I just think by going through that and, like, going through the resilience of getting it back, like, I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah suppliers might say it's different but
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh well thank you so much for coming in it's Absolute so pleasure.
1: inspiring to listen
0: to your story i sit here all day um but yeah thank you so much for coming in and um pleasure. yeah well, we'd love to get you back on and maybe sam as well yeah you know,
1: i'll message sam after this i'll be like i think i've got your podcast <laughs> he's oh, irish nice so he will talk okay yeah, we might book this for a few more hours <laughs> yeah.
0: perfect nice one thank you thanks a lot